Let me ask you a question this morning. When was the last time you were in the middle of something when you thought to yourself, I might have bit off more than I could chew? Have you ever been in a situation where you're like just right in the middle of it, you know, like this might be more than I can handle? Anyone ever did like a, 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 a housing renovation or, you know, maybe you took a new job and you're excited for it, but you got to, you know, your first week of work, you're like, what have I done? I'm in uh, above my pay grade or something. I don't know, right? We, we sometimes get in the middle of things and we thought this might be more than I can handle. Uh, a couple summers ago, I was at my friend's uh, cottage, and they had a cottage on the lake. And uh, my friend's a real athlete. He, he loves biking and hiking and swimming. And so every morning he gets up, and uh, his cottage is on a bay of the lake. And so he swims the perimeter of the bay of his lake. It takes him about an hour swim, and, uh, and he does that every morning. And so, you know, I got up there for like the one night that I was, up, uh, you know, up there. I was just up there. He's up there all summer. I go up for one night, and I was like, you know what, if he could swim the bay... I could at least swim from the dock to the other side of the lake, right? I'm a pretty good swimmer. I'm not like, you know, a triathlete or anything. I'm a, I'm a solid swimmer. And, and so I jumped off the dock, and, and the kids were out on the paddle boards, and they're all having fun. And, and so I thought, I'm going to swim to the other side of the lake. How many know I made it to the other side of the lake pretty easily? You know, it was fun. It was relaxing. It was refreshing. I made it to the other side, and that was easy. And I was like, man, I'm such a great swimmer, you know? <laughs> And then I turned around and I thought, well, I better head back. And I got halfway back. And how many know what happened? I ran out of gas, right? How many know, like, you know, you start out and you're kind of doing, like, whatever stroke this is called, right? And you're like, this is good. And you get to the other side of the lake. And then you're like, well, I just need to relax a little bit. So I start doing this stroke, right? And then all of a sudden I start doing this stroke, have you ever seen anyone in the lake doing this? You know that they're tired, right? <laughs> and then you start doing this one. <laughs> and, you're like, and I'm halfway back, and I'm thinking, I might have bit off more than I could chew. My, my muscles are screaming. I'm tired. But how many know that when you're swimming, there's no quitting? <laughs> when you're halfway back, right? There's a saying for that. It's sink or swim, right? And so you got, sometimes you got to push through what you're going through. Uh, check out these famous people uh, who might have wanted to quit halfway through their vision, but, but they had to push through. Thomas Edison, he's created something that's, you know, arguably like changed our lives more than anything. You know, there's a lot, we don't think about it a lot, but imagine life without light bulbs, right? Just imagine like all you night owls, you get all those extra hours, you know, you'd have to go to bed at 7.30 right now if you didn't have the light bulb, right? And so he's changed our lives. But listen to what was said about Edison. As a young student, teachers told him that he was too stupid to learn anything. Thomas Edison, he was fired from his first two jobs for being unproductive. Can you imagine that? Well, I, I can see how they, you know, they might have thought that. Uh, history tells us that there was probably almost about a thousand unsuccessful attempts at creating the light bulb before he was able to harness electricity and create the light bulb. How are you thankful that Edison pushed through what he was going through to give us light today? How about Albert Einstein, right? The name is synonymous with genius, right? We think about Einstein as a genius. Did you know that there's also something else named after Einstein? It's called Einstein syndrome. And that basically is for, there's some people who have delayed speech patterns. Einstein didn't speak in full sentences till he was almost about nine years old. He was delayed in his speech 
pattern. Uh, we see that he was expelled from school. He had a rebellious nature. And so Einstein, the genius, had some struggles that he had to work through. But we know that he revolutionized science and ended up winning a Nobel Prize. He pushed through what he was going through. Anyone ever heard of a Trafodata company? Trafodata. That sounds like a real 70s company, doesn't it? Trafodata. Because it was. That was Bill Gates' first company. He dropped out of Harvard to, uh, to start Trafodata. And when that failed, he continued to press on until he created Microsoft. And one year after launching Microsoft, he became the world's youngest uh, self-made billionaire. Amazing. Did you know if you invested in Microsoft in those first public offerings, you would have had a 30,000% return on your investment. It's incredible. Walt Disney, age 22, fired from the Missouri newspaper for not being creative enough. <laughs> and he might have thought that was real because then he started Laugh-O-Gram Studios where he went bankrupt and then he invented the two little mice, Mickey and Minnie, for which he's won the most Academy Awards by any individual. He pushed through what he was going through. You know, over the last two weeks, we've been talking about having a burden for what is and a vision for what could be. You know, we've been talking about having this God-given burden for our lives and for our families, for our, our workplace, our business, our church, our community. And my prayer as your pastor is that we would be compelled, that we would have this stirring in us, that we would have this fired up uh, spirit in us that God has a vision for us as individuals and for us as a, as a church community. Right? How many have been sensing God stirring or birthing something in you that God is about to do something great in our region? Amen. That, if, you, if you're not there yet, we'll get you there. It's okay. We got a few more. How many have a stirring that God is up to something good and he wants you to be a part of it? How many have a stirring that God is up to something good and he wants Bethel Church to be a part of it? Right? And so we've been talking about building lives of faith and a, and a city of hope brick, brick by brick. You know, big things aren't built all at once. They're built brick by brick. And so last week we talked about this idea of having a vision for where God wanted to lead us, but we also said this, a vision without a plan is, do you remember what it is? It's a fantasy. A vision without a plan is a fantasy. Thank you so much for paying attention back there, right? The plan, <laughs> the plan is the bridge or the path to get from where we are to where God is leading us to go. But here's something I've discovered about most visions and plans. They take longer than you think they'll take. Right? If you've ever done a construction project at your house, it takes longer than you think it will take. Most plans and visions turn out to be a little harder than you thought they would be. They often cost more than you think they would cost. And sometimes plans and visions even come with critics. You ever had like your best plan and then you share it with someone and they're like, no, it's not a good plan, right? And sometimes our plans come with critics. But there's always a point when you're working your plan at some point that you pause and you ask yourself this, like, am I doing the right thing, right? You, you pause, you say, have I made the right decisions? Do I have what it takes to carry out this plan and to see it through. That's the reality that Nehemiah experienced as he embraced the burden that God had placed on his heart to rebuild the broken down and burned walls of Jerusalem. 
You know, throughout this series, we've been drawing on the example of Nehemiah's life and his leadership uh, for inspiration to uh, how to live and how to lead our own lives with a God-given vision for our lives. We want to build lives of faith and a city of hope brick by brick. Will you say that with me? Say brick by brick. Brick by brick. We've talked about having a burden. We've talked about having a vision. This morning, I want to talk about opposition to the vision. How many love opposition? No, we don't. We don't love opposition. So last week, if you remember, we left off in chapter two. Nehemiah had made the journey from Babylon to Jerusalem. It's about 2,700 kilometers. I was reading today, you know, uh, how long that would take if you walked. It would be about 60 days to walk. I thought, well, that would suck. What if you got a donkey? (laughs) Did you know donkeys walk at the same pace as humans? (laughs) 60 days if you had a donkey. (laughs) I don't know, 60-day journey. When he makes the trip and he shows the king's letter of authorization to the local leaders and, and he begins to assess the situation. He begins to look at the condition of the walls, but while he's doing that, he's also assessing the hearts and the condition of the people of Jerusalem around him. See, Nehemiah's true burden wasn't really over the broken walls, was it? It wasn't over the brick and the mortar. It was over the broken lives of people who were living below God's calling for them. And so Nehemiah, he sets out rallying the leaders and the people. He begins casting the vision and getting the people on board. And he tells them all about how God's given him this vision and how God's shown favor to him and and how uh, King Artaxerxes has blessed him and and gotten on board. And so the people of Jerusalem, they're pumped up to get to work. Would you just say, 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 we're pumped up. (laughs) Are you pumped up? All right, let's get pumped up to do the work of God. They're pumped up to rebuild the city that had been torn down and left in ruin. But if you remember where we left off last week in Nehemiah 2 verse 10, this is what it said. As everyone's excited to get pumped up and do the work of God, not everyone was excited. This is what verse 10 says. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard of my arrival, they were very displeased that someone had come to help the people of Israel. You can almost see it. It almost seems like a Disney movie, right? Like the hero shows up and the villains are displeased. How many know that there's always opposition to a God-given vision? There's always opposition to a God-given vision. And this is what I want us to understand today, that any time God leads you or prompts you to do something meaningful, to do something generous, or to make a difference, to, to take a stand, you can expect his blessing and his provision. You can expect God's faithfulness in your life. But you can also expect opposition and obstacles. Sometimes we live in this assumption that we're, if we're in God's will, then it's going to be easy, right? If, if we're in God's will, then his blessing and favor are going to make everything smooth. And we often think of blessing to be, you know, like physical, material blessing, like success and health and an abundance. We expect it to be easy, but, but under that line of thinking, opposition or obstacles can sometimes have us wondering if we're outside the will of God. In my last pastoral assignment, I, I planted a multi-site 
uh, church location, a, a church plant. And as we were in the middle of our planning, we'd spent months and months and we cast a vision and we rallied the people and we purchased all of our equipment. We were gonna be a set up and tear down every week church. Uh, the meeting in a school and about three, four months ahead of time, I contacted the school and said, hey, we wanna use your auditorium, what do you think? And they said, well, let us get back to you. And how many know they never got back to me? They didn't get back to me for a month, and so I called them. They said, well, we'll get back to you. They didn't get back to me for two months, so I called them. Well, we'll get back to you. They didn't call me for three months. So, I got, so we're getting into the summer. We're launching at the end of September. I called them the week before we're about to launch our new church, and they said, well, we'll have to get back to you. I said, well, we're kind of running out of time here for you to get back to me. And so one week before we were supposed to launch, we didn't have any permission to meet at the school. And uh, the location we're in, there wasn't a lot of availability uh, for space. And so my pastor and I began to pray. And we said, what are we going to do? And we said, well, you know what? Church doesn't require a building. I mean, there's a lot of churches in the world that meet outside of a building. There are churches all over Africa that meet under trees. And we thought, you know what? We've got some trees in our city. Let's host our launch party under a tree in the park. And so we couldn't get a building, so we got a, a picnic permit, and we launched under a tree. 100 people showed up to our, our church launch under a tree in a park. And I said, thank you so much for coming to our new church location. This is amazing. I don't know where we'll be next week, so stay tuned. <laughs> and so we were nomadic for the first couple of weeks until the school finally said, okay, you could use our auditorium. But how many know, right, you face obstacles and you begin to wonder, God, is this really what you want for us? Right, you begin to question, is this where you're leading us? I thought it was gonna be easy. Jesus never left us with the assumption that living for him was gonna be easy. He tried to prepare us for the opposite. In John 16, he says this, I've told you all of this so that in me you might have peace. Here on earth you'll have many trials and sorrows, but take heart because I've overcome the world. Jesus says, if you follow me, there's going to be some obstacles and opposition in your life. 1 Peter 5 says this, stay alert. Watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. That does not sound very enticing for your newcomers class. Welcome to church. The enemy wants to devour you. Stand firm against him, though, the Bible says, and be strong in your faith. There's always opposition to a God-given vision. Just look at scripture. Adam and Eve, they're trying to fulfill God's plan for their life. The serpent comes to distract them. We look at Moses and Israel. They had Pharaoh who was set on keeping them captive in Egypt. We have David had his opponent and Goliath. And just look at Jesus, our hero. He had Herod. He had the Pharisees. He had Judas who backstabbed him, one of his own closest friends. He has the devil and the demons and the list of Jesus haters just goes on and on. And so here we find in this text, Nehemiah has Sanballat and Tobiah who show up to oppose his visions. Uh, Nehemiah 4, verse 1, if you have that with me, uh, turn there with me this morning. Nehemiah 4, verse 1. Sanballat was very angry when he learned that we were rebuilding the wall. He flew into a rage and mocked the Jews, saying in front of his friends and the Samaritan army officers, Samarian army officers, what does this bunch of poor, feeble Jews think they're doing? Do they think they can build the wall in a single day or by just offering a few sacrifices? 
Do they actually think they can make something of stones from a rubbish heap and charred ones at that? And then Tobiah the Ammonite, who was standing beside him, remarked, that stone wall would collapse if even a fox walked along the top of it. His picture, like these cartoon characters, like Sanballat and Tobiah. Like just their names make you want to not like them, right? Like there's some names of people you're just like, you know, I've had a bad experience with someone with that name and I just, that name irks me. All the teachers, they tell me that all the time. There's certain students with certain names, you're just kind of like, eh, right? Sanballat and Tobiah. I hope we're not going to do any baby dedications for any Sanballats or Tobiah anytime soon, Right? But they're the leaders of these neighboring people groups and, and they're displeased with seeing that Israel will make any attempt at changing their situation. Sometimes people just hate to see you make progress in your life. I love this quote by G.K. Chesterton. He's an old theologian, but this is what he said. The Bible tells us to love our neighbors and also to love our enemies, probably because they're generally the same people. I love that photo. Like, look at this guy. He's a theologian. Like, and that's his hair in a good day. You should see some of the other ones. It's crazy. Theolog that's like theological humor when you find that in those like, books. You're like, this is amazing. Now, Nehemiah's arrival and his contagious enthusiasm irks Sanballat and his crew because they wanted Jerusalem to stay weak and insignificant. They wanted, they, they wanted them to be dependent on the other tribes of the, of the area. See, a strong Jerusalem would upset the balance of power. And upsetting the balance of power would rob Sanballat and his friends of their influence and ultimately their wealth. You know, so as long as the people of Jerusalem were content with the status quo, the enemy was okay with them. But as soon as they wanted to take steps into their calling, as soon as they began to make progress, the opposition showed up to discourage them. How many know, we just read, there's an enemy of your soul. And as long as you're content with the status quo of coming to church and filling a pew and making it routine and ritual, he's okay with that, right? But as soon as you take steps into your calling, as soon as you begin to pursue God's purposes and make progress in your life, how many know you can expect opposition and obstacles? If you've experienced that, say amen. 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 All across this room. And so Sam Bellis shows up. He says, what does this poor bunch of feeble Jews think they're doing? Now, we know the word feeble. We know that means weak. But in this original language, it actually has this connotation of being a flower that's been picked or cut off. It, it, it's dead. It has no life source. And so he's basically saying to them, you know, what are these little lifeless flowers doing? Do they think it's going to be easy? Uh, do they think they could just accomplish this task in a day? Do they think that you could just worship your way through this one? Do they think that they could make something of these mediocre building materials uh, that's been left in this rubbish, uh, rubbish heap and the ruins of this old wall? And then Tobiah jumps in, yeah, and look at how rickety he is, right? Uh, see, that's my cartoon voice, right? Look how rickety he is, right? A fox on top of it would knock it down, right? And so I just picture these two guys. I don't know, Tobiah, he's like the short one. I don't know why. Santa also tells us in my mind. There's no need for an army. He was like, this thing's so rickety, a fox is just going to knock it over. There's always opposition to a God-given vision. Some of you need more imagination as you read Scripture. And you're like just bored to tears reading Scripture because you have no imagination. <laughs> right? Here's the thing. We can expect opposition in the form of criticism. 
Criticism always follows vision. Why? Because vision is about the future, a preferred future. And vision is about changing the future. See, a vision sees that the future, that sees what is and what it could be. You know, it sees what it is and it sees that there could be something more, something different. So criticism opposes vision because vision's about change. How many know that a lot of people love change until something changes, right? We want to see a change in our finance until our budget changes, right? We want to see a change in our health until our diet changes. All the men, right? Your wife's like, let's get you healthy. You're like, yeah, let's do it, right? Kale, I don't know what kale, what is that about, right? Sometimes people want to see their church grow, but they don't want to see their church change, Right? Our church, you've done so well at being flexible as God's led and made changes to see our church grow. It's an amazing thing. But here's the thing. Criticism is often an attempt at control by maintaining the things the same. It's really what criticism is often trying to do. Let's not upset the status quo. Let's keep things the same because then I can control it. I know what to expect. Did you know that researchers have discovered that we have a bias towards things staying the same? You know, we love knowing what to expect. And when we know what to expect, we, can, we, we feel like we're in control. But when we don't know what to expect, then we feel out of control. We get anxiety. Uh, researchers actually have shown that we prefer predictable outcomes. And during their test, they showed that people would prefer a negative, predictable outcome as opposed to an unknown outcome. People would actually predict uh, would rather something be uh, a negative outcome than not knowing how it will turn out in the end because it creates anxiety not knowing how things are going to go. Well, listen to what Nehemiah, uh, his critics are saying. They're saying, who do you think you are? You are losers. You don't have what it takes. Your resources aren't enough, and you're probably going to fail. You're stupid. Your idea is stupid, and you should just quit right now. You can just picture these guys, right? Now check out Nehemiah's response to his haters. There is none. <laughs> Nothing. He doesn't say anything to them. Neither response is, he's, I'm just going to keep working the plan. He doesn't respond. He doesn't answer. He doesn't defend himself. He doesn't uh, defend the vision. How many know that you're rarely going to uh, convert your critics, right? You're going to rarely convince them uh, with your response. And so Nehemiah, he ignores the haters and he stays focused on working the plan. Now, here's the thing we got to know, though. Not every unfavorable, uh, you know, feedback is criticism against you, right? Sometimes there's criticism and then there's sometimes critique, Right? I think criticism is kind of like this personal attack. Like, you're stupid, your idea is stupid, you should just quit right now. Right? Uh, well, it, it's vague. It's just, this isn't going to work just because. Like, I, I can just tell it's not going to work. Right? But a, a critique is like, I actually care for you. Uh, let me tell you the aspects of your plan that I think could use change. I believe in you, but here's some things to consider. Not every unfavorable feedback is criticism. Right? But we have to know the difference. But here's the thing. We become paralyzed by opposition when we give more weight to our critics than we do to our calling. Right? 
when we give more weight to what the critics are saying about it, when we face criticism, even when we hear it, we gotta measure that against, but what do I know God's put in my heart to do? Nehemiah, he can't control what people says about him, so he doesn't engage. But what he does do is he prays. Have you ever noticed how often Nehemiah prays in this, in this story we've read so far? He's like, he like prayed for a burden, then he prayed for an opportunity to talk to the king, then he prayed for favor from the king. You know, and here he is, he, he's praying now uh, when he's facing opposition. And I'm gonna warn you, you're, you're probably gonna like Nehemiah's prayer. You'll like it. It's raw, it's real, it's authentic. You know, he's not talking to his critics, but he's talking to God about his critics, right? But I just gotta warn you, uh, Jesus taught us to pray a little differently than Nehemiah did. You know, and to Nehemiah's defense, he was praying pre-Jesus, pre-Sermon on the Mount. But, but listen to his prayer in verse four. Then I prayed, hear us, O God, for we are being mocked. May their scoffing fall back on their own heads, and may they themselves become captives in a foreign land. Do not ignore their guilt. Do not blot out their sins, for they have provoked you to anger here in front of the builders, right? That's it. Nehemiah's like, I'm not talking to them, but God, let me just unload all my frustration about them to you. He addresses this distraction through prayer. Prayer readjusts our focus, and it regains our perspective. That's what prayer really does for us at the moment. You know, we always have to make prayer our first response and not our last resort because prayer refocuses our perspective and it, it readjusts, our, our, it recalibrates us towards what God's called us to do, right? Have you ever faced an obstacle so big that seems so insurmountable at the time, but then you gain some perspective and it wasn't as big as you thought it was? Have you ever noticed that like, last year's problems aren't this year's problems? Last month's problems aren't this month's problems. Last week's problems aren't this week's problems. We find a way of moving through our problems. The things that we think are so insurmountable are, are things that we actually are able to work through. But sometimes we need perspective to see it for what it is. Prayer shouldn't be our first response. It should be our first response, not our last response, because prayer is a spiritual response. The Bible tells us that our opposition and the obstacles are actually spiritual in nature. 2 Corinthians 6, 11 says, we're not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities in the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. How do you know if you're working in your own strength or in God's strength? Well, did you start with prayer or are you ending up in prayer as a last resort? If you haven't started in prayer, you're in your own strength. But when you start out and say, God, whatever thing, everything I do is spiritual in nature. The, the, I know there's people opposing me, but I know it's really the enemy who's attacking the plans of God for my life. Let me start in the spirit and move on from there. And so Nehemiah, he unloads his frustration, his hurt, his pain to God, and he keeps working to fulfill this vision. And now the people are really starting to make progress. Verse six says, at last the wall was completed to half its height around the entire city, for the people had worked with enthusiasm. I love this. Some other translations say they worked with their whole hearts. They're making progress because they're in it to win it. But then it says, Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the work was going ahead and that the gaps in the wall of Jerusalem were being repaired. They were furious. 
And they all made plans to come and fight against Jerusalem and to throw us into confusion. But we prayed to our God and guarded the city day and night to protect ourselves. If you're really thinking about like, these people in real terms, like, there's, a, there's an anxiety level. There's an anxiousness that's going on in this time. And outwardly, things are, are, are going pretty well. Progress is being made. You know, they're defending their city. But how many know the opposition doesn't always come from the outside? Doesn't always come from the outside. Like, these people, they've been inspired by Nehemiah's vision. They've given their whole hearts and, and they've given everything to this task and they've made a lot of progress. And they had a lot to be proud of. But they found themselves in the middle of the project, kind of like I was in the middle of the lake. They were, they, they were gassed out. They were exhausted. They're out of inspiration. You know, as they looked at the wall all the way around the city to half its height, they looked at themselves and thought, man, we've come so far. We have a lot to celebrate. But here in the middle of the project, they don't see how far they've come. All they can see is how far they have yet to go. We've given everything we have, and we've only come this far. Scripture says they fended off the opposition. They had fended off the enemy's criticism. Now they're facing something closer to home. It was the opposition in the form of discouragement. Verse 10 says, the people of Judah began to complain. The workers are getting tired and there's so much rubble to be moved. We'll never be able to build the wall by ourselves. Friends, this isn't the enemy talking. These are the teammates. These are the friends and the family. And they're starting to voice their concerns. Who do we think we are? We don't have what it takes. There's too much work and we're probably gonna fail anyways. We were stupid to think we could pull this off. Our critics were right. We might as well just quit right now. These people are beyond frustrated. To me, frustration is like a, a frustration is something that you could deal with out here. Like it's irksome, but I can deal with it. But frustration that becomes internalized is discouragement. Rick Warren talks about four contributors to discouragement. He talks about fatigue. Fatigue leads to discouragement. When I've given everything I have and I haven't seen the end result I looked for, I get tired. How many of those tiredness? I mean, you know, you're not yourself when you're tired. Sometimes a spiritual thing for you to do is to have a nap. This afternoon, you need to go home and do something spiritual and have a rest. Fatigue leads to discouragement. So does frustration. They're like, look at all this mess that we were working in, right? It's this rubble everywhere. How do we begin to make progress when we are surrounded by so much mess and clutter? Some of our lives are so cluttered right? We don't take the time to clean our life, that we are so frustrated by the clutter of our life. The third thing is perceived failure. This isn't going as fast as I thought. This is much harder than I thought. This is much costlier than I thought. I think that we failed in the plan. What Rick Warren says, if you failed in the plan, just make a new plan. That's how you move past it. The fourth thing is fear. Fear of criticism, fear of failure. You know, there's some people that actually fear that they don't deserve to succeed, right? And it leads to this discouragement. Rick Warren, he says, you don't have to stay stuck in discouragement, but pray and ask God to identify the reason for it and then start to move forward in confidence. Don't get stuck. Figure out, God, am I just tired? Do I just need a nap and a snack and I can keep going? 
right? Am I just like fatigued? Am I, uh, do I just need to get some clutter cleaned up in my life to move forward? Well, the people of God move forward. Verse 11, it says, meanwhile, our enemies were saying before they know what's happening, we'll swoop down on them and kill them and end their work. And the Jews who lived near the enemy came and told us again and again, they will come from all directions and attack us. And so I placed armed guards behind the lowest parts of the wall in the exposed areas. I stationed the people to stand guard by families, armed with swords and spears and bows. And then as I looked over the situation, I called together the nobles and the rest of the people and said this to them, don't be afraid of the enemy. Remember the Lord who was great and glorious and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. He's saying, don't focus on your fears or you'll be overwhelmed, but focus on God and his goodness and you'll find peace. He's talking to the people who, had, who knew the story of Gideon. Remember Gideon and his 300 men who conquered the enemy without even a weapon. With only, uh, remember him. Remember David with his sling who conquered Goliath in these unexpected moments. He, he's trying to say, you know, the, the fuel for your future is God's faithfulness in the past. He's saying to them, remember what God has done and let that fuel your faith for what God has to do. He says, you guys are involved in a great work. You're a great people. This is a great city. We're serving a great God. Let's get back on the wall and let's continue to do what God's called us to do. He says, you might not see it. In the next passage, he says, the people are spread out all around. You can't see all that. You might feel like you're the only one or that we're few, but all around the city, there's people just like us working together. You're a part of something bigger than yourselves. Church, we're a part of something bigger than just ourselves. There's churches all across Penticton this morning gathering, uh, worshiping God together with a vision to see a city of hope built in this region. We're part of the church across Canada, across this world. I believe that the local church is the power and the purpose of God to bring his light and change to this world. And we're part of something much bigger than ourselves. I know when you go to work tomorrow, you're gonna think, I'm the only Christian in my office. Well, you're one there. But there's a ton of us all around bringing the light and the life of Jesus. Let's continue to remind ourselves how great God is and get back to work with the vision he's given to us. Verse 15, we'll wrap up with this in just a moment. When our enemies heard that we knew of their plans and that God had frustrated them, we all returned to our work on the wall. But then on only half the men worked while the other half stood guard with spears and shields, bows and coats of mail. The leaders stationed themselves behind the people of Judah who were building the wall. The laborers carried on their work with one hand supporting their load and one hand holding a weapon. I just picture them like a trowel in one hand and a sword in the other. Let's get to work. Church, that's what the kingdom of God is. It's about building brick by brick and fighting battle by battle. Brick by brick and battle by battle. That's how we build the kingdom of God. See, we face criticism from the outside. We face discouragement from the inside. But Nehemiah says, let's just keep encouraging ourselves and who the Lord is and what he's called us to do. I'm gonna invite you to stand this morning and I don't know what you've been going through. I don't know what the vision that God is giving you for your life. Maybe you're here and you say, you know what, the spiritual vision God's given to me is to, is to rebuild my marriage. 
And you're saying, I, I have this vision, this God-given vision to rebuild my marriage. Maybe you're here and you're saying, I, I'm trying to build a family who follows Jesus. You're, and, and you're saying, you know, brick by brick and battle by battle, I want to be a family who follows Jesus. Maybe you're here and you're saying, the vision God's given me is to be free from addiction. And, and, and I've made some big progress and I'm halfway there, but, but I can see what's in front of me and I know that there's still a big battle ahead, brick by brick battle by battle. Lord, as we look at our community and we look at our society that we live in, we know as a church that we're outliers. Outliers in our beliefs. Outliers in, in what we believe about God and in His created humanity. And sometimes we need to stand up and take a stand for what we, what we know is true. And that happens brick by brick and battle by battle. And we can't be discouraged by criticism. We can't be discouraged uh, by what's going on in our hearts. We've got to continue to feed our hearts and our minds, feed our faith with the goodness of God. Amen. And so Jesus, today, when we come before you, God, your creation, your children, your servants, God, we want to have a God-given vision, a vision for our life. A life of purpose and meaning beyond ourselves and beyond this time where we want something that lasts for eternity. Where we want to live our lives for you completely. God, we want a life of purpose. God, we want to have families serving you. God, we want our businesses and our jobs to be a way of glorifying you. God, we want our church to be a light and our beacon in, in this community. A, a beacon of hope. Beacon of salvation. Lord, we want our community to be a community of hope. Lord, it's going to take a lot to change this community that we live in. There's a lot of brokenness, a lot of hurt, a lot of dysfunction. God, it's not going to happen overnight, but brick by brick, I pray. Lord, for our church to be able to come alongside the people that we love and care for, your people, our community. Lord, help us to make a difference. God, help us come alongside our leaders. Come with great ideas, great enthusiasm. Help us to do what we can do. We pray, God, that you would do what only you can do. God, as we get our hands dirty and we begin to rebuild the wall, Lord God, that, that in the middle of that, we would find you already at work. Lord, as we go to, to our jobs tomorrow, we begin to share our faith with our coworkers. We would find that you're already at work in their hearts already at work in them, causing them to question and to think about the things of God. Lord, we pray as we reach out with boldness and courage to make a difference in our uh, the families through the food pantry, whatever it is, God, whatever the journey takes us, God, that you would have already gone ahead into it. And Lord, that we would just be coming along behind you and beside you, being your hands and your feet where you're already at work by your Holy Spirit. I pray for the person that's discouraged today. God, whether it's been the criticism of others. Maybe they grew up hearing criticism all their life that's caused them to question who they are and what their value is to your plans and purposes. God, I pray that they would just begin to focus on who you say they are. God, that they are loved, that they are chosen, that they are redeemed. God, I pray for the person addiction today, fighting for sobriety. God, Lord, you have set them free. Lord, I pray that you would help them to walk in that freedom, help them to choose that freedom. God, that you would begin to heal their body and their mind, Lord God, to experience that transformation in all of its fullness and wholeness, we pray. God, I pray for the family that's in the middle. Uh, maybe there's a lot of conflict at home. 
They're wondering, how can we rebuild this family? God, I pray, brick by brick, love by love, forgiveness by forgiveness, grace by grace. God, they would see something beautiful rise from the ashes. God, we just pray right now in Jesus' name that in this place there would be lives transformed by the goodness of God. And as we go from this place with that testimony this week, we would see others that can share that same hope and joy and peace that we found. Lord, we love you, Jesus. We love you. In your name we pray.